0: Hello everyone, this is Historian Historiansplaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So this is going to be a special installment of the podcast, because I now have 50 patrons, and if you have been looking at my Patreon page, you may have noticed that I promised that if I reached 50 patrons, I would produce a lecture about... The Secret Teachings and Rituals of Freemasonry, and that's my main area of research. That's what I did my dissertation research on, Freemasonry, specifically in the 1700s. So it's an area that I know perhaps the most about of any particular historical topic, and I'm not going to talk so much about the history of the institution, which is very complicated and eventful. I'm going to mainly try to give an overview of this sort of what I think of as really the backbone of the institution the myths and rituals that you learn and participate in if you are a Freemason, and that I think have really been ignored and overlooked. By academic historians. I think there's a lot of feeling that if you get into the myths and rituals and symbols of Freemasonry, then you're probably some kind of conspiracy theorist or weird, you know, mystical quack, and that they aren't really proper subjects of historical research. So the histories of Freemasonry that have been written tend to talk a lot about the politics and the class profile. And all of those things are important and interesting historically, but they're sort of missing the main reasons why people actually become Masons and the most important things I think that people get from taking part in Masonry. So One of the most frequent questions I get about the subject is just, what is Freemasonry? And it's something that on the one hand is very simple and easy to define, and on the other hand, extremely complicated. Basically, Freemasonry is a fraternal society. So it's a social club that uses a lot of the language of family, of brotherhood. Uh, and it is fraternal, so it's a society for men. In most places where it exists in the world, it is male only. So on the one hand, you could say, well, it's basically a fraternal society like any number of others, like the Elks or the Rotary Club or the Lions or college fraternities. But it predates those. It has roots going all the way back to the Middle Ages. It's It wasn't just invented by some, you know, Victorian enthusiasts for ritual. And it has a very complex set of myths and rituals that have been gradually developed over the centuries, right? So it's a venue to socialize and network. It's a way to form bonds and connections across space and geography. Uh, but it has this very deep ritual side that really distinguishes it from anything else I would say currently existing in the world. You may know it is built, the basic building block of the Masonic movement is the lodge, a sort of local club that gathers sometimes in its own hall or sometimes in borrowed or rented spaces that might bring together the Masons in a particular neighborhood or town, or sometimes people of a particular industry or profession in a given town. Uh, And these lodges are connected and managed to some degree by bigger organizations called Grand Lodges and usually Masons divide up places, states, countries, and so forth into jurisdictions, each of which is led by its own Grand Lodge and Grand Officers. Now, this can be somewhat misleading. It can sound as if Freemasonry is this very powerful, uh, sort of centralized group overseeing world affairs. There are a lot of conspiracy theories about Masons kind of pulling the strings of politics or business. And this is not true. Masonry can have a lot of influence, but it's also extremely decentralized. Each lodge is basically like a little independent world unto itself. It controls its own membership, its own money, its own records, And the Grand Lodges, although they have a kind of managerial role and they can sometimes accept or reject Lodges as legitimate or not, they don't really have that much power. They're only given as much power or authority as the Lodges want to give to them. And there is no World Grand Lodge. You know, it's difficult enough to put together and maintain a Grand Lodge even for a small jurisdiction like a state or a country. Uh, and a lot of these Grand Lodges are constantly confused or disputing You know who's the legitimate Grand Lodge of this or that place. Uh, some countries like France can have two or three Grand Lodges all kind of vying for support and recognition. Uh, and there's really very little coordination. There are many different branches of Freemasonry, uh, often their rituals vary somewhat from one branch to another. Their policies with regard to women, uh, their political valences or complexions can be different. Uh, in the United States, there's also a traditionally black branch of Freemasonry called Prince Hall, which also extends beyond the U.S. as well, uh, and. There can be constant change in what branches of Freemasonry recognize one another as legitimate or regular, uh, you know, meaning following the commonly accepted rules, right? But even that word "regular" is deceptive because there's no total consensus on what the basic rules of Freemasonry are. Right, so there's a lot of ambiguity, often a lot of you know isms and schisms, as Rastafaris would say. Uh, and it is also governed somewhat democratically it's it it can be a little this also can be exaggerated you know some historians like margaret jacob try to claim that the roots of modern democracy come out of freemasonry and they were so egalitarian and that's that's not really true there was deference and class difference in freemasonry there always has been but at least formally Officers are chosen by election. Uh, The decisions of whom to admit as a new candidate are decided by democratic vote. Uh, And so ultimately, the power base really is in the members at large, right? This is not a pyramidal organization with some sort of uh, powerful puppeteer at the top, although titles like Grand Master, you know, can can sound that way. That's not really how it works. It's fairly democratic and very decentralized. So, as I said before, scholars, although there has been a sort of growth of legitimate academic research on Freemasonry, In about the last 25 years, and you now have several historians at prominent universities like UCLA uh, working on Freemasonry and publishing pretty good books about it. They've tended to be very distracted by class, politics, and you might say sort of high intellectual philosophy supposed connections to people like, you know, Isaac Newton or Thomas Paine and so on. And they've tended to ignore the myths and the rituals, which I absolutely maintain are the real bedrock of what Freemasonry is all about. It's why it's survived and persisted through so many years and continues to attract people. And it's what really makes it, gives it power and influence over people's lives you know not affiliation with any particular political party or ideology but the myths the sort of grand story and the grand picture of the world into which people can integrate themselves when they become Freemasons okay so where did this organization and its defining myths and rituals come from well It grew initially out of the gatherings of actual working stonemasons who worked on major building sites in medieval Europe, which first and foremost means cathedrals, right? Huge building projects that required large numbers of skilled workers who could measure and quarry and carve stone. This is actually a controversial idea, was a controversial idea for some time. There were many historians up until the 1980s, there were historians who still argued that Freemasonry was somehow invented out of whole cloth by kind of gentleman philosophers who just liked symbolism and allegory. Uh, But there is good historical documentation, and I'll talk about that in a minute, that shows that that's not true, that Freemasonry did develop little by little generation by generation out of these gatherings of stonemasons at medieval building sites and these uh, groups of stonemasons would house themselves sometimes and perform work in sort of temporary structures you might think of them as kind of tarp covered lean-to structures at these work sites which were called lodges and eventually by the late middle ages we, there are documents showing that these gatherings of Freemasons, or, or stonemasons I should say, who worked together, who organized themselves and cooperated on these building projects, started to call themselves lodges. So it's, it's a metonym, right? The, the word transferred from the structure to the group of people. Now it seems that these lodges of masons started to do a lot of the same kinds of things that other workers' guilds did in the Middle Ages. They adopted patron saints, they created secret passwords, secret handshakes, in order to distinguish who was a member and who was not. They created an apprenticeship process where new workers would have to uh, practice and learn for several years before they were admitted as masters of the craft. And they would set standards, you know, of inspecting people's work and skill, inspecting the soundness and quality of the product. Uh, And they would enter into negotiations and contracts with patrons. And in the Middle Ages, that meant the state and the crown but also even more than that, the church. The church was certainly the biggest single patron of building projects. So in a lot of ways, the the Masons' lodges were similar to other guilds, like guilds of weavers or tailors or goldsmiths. What was different about them was that rather than serving many small clients, instead they had one or maybe one or two big employers in each country right say for example the hungarian crown and the church or the scottish crown and the church and this meant that all the various workers of different levels of skill and experience right from apprentices on up to master builders were all in a similar position of having to negotiate with these big employers for the best pay and working conditions that they could get and this created a sort of greater solidarity among these different workers of different levels and there seems to have been something more of a spirit of equality uh, and inclusion among these building workers as compared to let's say a furniture makers workshop where the master furniture maker really tried to control and limit the wages of their apprentices and journeyman workers, and there was much more of a kind of gulf and tension. Uh, And it was actually the master craftsman who played the role of employer, whereas in the building trade it was more a patron uh, that played the role of employer. So it seems there was something more of a, uh, at least gestures towards equality among builders. And there was also a more dramatic separation between the builders and the rest of society. And this is something that some writers, like particularly Jasper Ridley, have pointed out, I think quite rightly, that Freemasons were looked upon with suspicion by much of medieval society. They were seen as strange and alien because rather than setting up a shop and working uh, within a village or a neighborhood like, say, a weaver might do or a dyer, instead they traveled around from one big building site to another. They were uprooted. You might say they were the original kind of rootless cosmopolitans, in quotation marks. Um, They often got into uh, spats or even fights with the local people, and uh, there were labor disputes, labor stoppages among stonemasons, And sometimes there also was fear and suspicion expressed through slanderous and defamatory folk stories, you know, much like people would spread stories about, you know, Jews eating babies or witches. uh, There were many folk stories, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, but also sometimes in Britain as well. Stories about masons practicing human sacrifice. Right. And you can think of uh, the story of London Bridge, you know, take, uh, take a fair lady and lock her up. Uh, there are other similar stories from Scotland and Hungary of, of people locking or, or bricking human sacrifices into their structures to strengthen them, which, uh, you know, I think represents the sort of the, the weirdness uh, with which people associated masons and masons themselves, it seems from fairly early on started to talk about themselves as special and distinct and a breed apart from the rest of society this is the sort of mindset i call masonic exceptionalism and this really particularly set them apart from an ordinary guild like like carpenters or or glaziers or whoever Okay, so how do we know what Masons were thinking and doing at this time? There are, there are many external references to money being paid to a lodge, uh, rules being instituted for stonemasons at a certain site, uh, a dispute over money or land, uh, a fight between Masons and townspeople. But the earliest internal records of what Freemasons were thinking and doing, they're quite rare. Because, probably because most Masons were illiterate, right? They worked visually through learning, through uh, bodies, uh, watching, practicing, and drawings. Um, But the earliest internal records are a series of documents that Masons call the Old Charges. And these are fairly rare written copies of speeches or addresses that were delivered to newly initiated masons. So when you would initiate uh, an apprentice as a member of a lodge, you would uh, tell them the sort of generic kind of moral expectations of how masons should conduct themselves, normal thing for any kind of social group or club in the Middle Ages. And you would also tell them about the history and origins of the masons craft and it seems that the masons considered their building craft to be the same thing on the one hand as the science of geometry so those words could be used almost interchangeably masonry and geometry and also they considered it uh, synonymous with their society their fraternal group of masons, right? They were the practitioners of this ancient art of geometry slash masonry. So the earliest set of old charges that survives is a long verse speech called the Regis Poem, which was first published in 1840. It was found in a private library in England and all the earliest old charges come from England. But it's in Middle English, and uh, it was probably penned somewhere between about 1390 and 1440. Initially, scholars dated it to about 1390. Some think it was a little later than that. It's certainly late medieval. But it's in verse, which suggests that it was composed in order to be recited from memory, right and only later was written down and the composition looking at the language the middle english of it it was probably composed and memorized much earlier than that maybe even as early as the 10th century so it represents medieval beliefs and practices in england so it's seven it's very long it's 794 lines of verse And a short section of it is a history of the craft of geometry, which it traces to Euclid and Egypt and his disciples. So it supposedly originated there with Euclid and then spread out from Egypt to other parts of the world. So the basic kind of template of the Regis poem, of giving this series of charges telling the rules and moral expectations of the fraternity and the mythic history of the craft, going back to antiquity, to the ancient world. That is repeated in many later so-called old charges, but the mythology becomes more complex and more elaborate. Egypt and Euclid are still usually mentioned in most of the old charges, but other uh, stages particularly biblical, become much more prominent. And you see an association with uh, the Old Testament and with King Solomon and Solomon's Temple. Okay, so the next oldest set of old charges after the Regis poem is the so-called Cook Manuscript, which comes from the mid-1400s, around 1450, also in Middle English. It's written on vellum, which is bound together in a book, and it traces masonry, the origins of masonry, which it usually calls geometry. And it claims that this art of geometry was first invented by Jabal, which is a very obscure character mentioned in the book of Genesis. He's a descendant of Cain and a son of Lamech. So Lamech... Uh, had several sons and daughters who, uh, according to medieval legend, were considered the originators of various trades and crafts like uh, tanning and weaving. Uh, and one of them, Jabal, was the inventor of geometry or or the building craft. Now, Jabal and his brothers and sisters understood that a great flood was coming, and so before it happened, they carved. The, the secrets of their crafts onto a pair of stone pillars, which they expected would survive the great flood. Uh, they did survive and they were discovered afterwards, one by Pythagoras, right, the celebrated and semi-legendary geometer, you know, mathematician of ancient Greece, and the other by the philosopher Hermes, And Hermes, when he's referred to in the Cook manuscript, it probably means both the Greek god, the sort of god of uh, intelligence, cleverness, trade, um, and also Hermes Trismegistus, the sort of mystical teacher who's discussed in the Corpus Hermeticum, which I talked about when I uh, talked about the scientific revolution, right? So these uh, two wise men, Pythagoras and Hermes, passed down the secrets of geometry eventually to Euclid, right? And then from there, they were taught to others and spread out from Egypt. So this is the much more elaborate, and in some ways you might say kind of quasi-mystical, story of the origins of, of masonry in the Cook manuscript. But it then adds a further element, a further important stage of the history beyond Euclid, which really becomes central to Masons' understanding of their own craft and their own importance, their exceptionalism from this point onward. And that's the episode of Solomon's Temple. So, the Cook manuscript, I'm going to read a little translation, uh, a prose translation in more modern English adapted from the Middle English, of this passage that discusses Solomon's temple. So the Cook manuscript says, What time that the children of Israel dwelt in Egypt, they learned the craft of masonry. And afterward, when they were driven out of Egypt, they came into the land now called Jerusalem, and it was occupied and meetings held, and the making of Solomon's temple that King David began. King David loved well masons, and he organized them much as they are now. And at the making of the temple in Solomon's time, as it is said in the Bible in the third book of Kings, that Solomon had fourscore thousand masons at his work, and the king's son of Tyre was his master mason. And in other chronicles, it is said, and in old books of masonry, that Solomon confirmed the charges that David, his father, had given to masons. And Solomon himself taught them their manners with but little difference from the manners that are used now. So this is the first known document that specifically connects Freemasonry to King Solomon and Solomon's temple. And Importantly, it says that the manners, meaning the rules, the customs that Masons learn in their apprenticeship, come from Solomon and the Solomonic age. And it claims, we can't know if this is true, but it claims that that this is not a new idea, that there are many old books of Masonry, as it says, that tell about this history with Solomon. And this really becomes a kind of core of how Masons understand themselves. So King Solomon is described in the Bible as a wise king who had special wisdom uh, and authority given to him from God and from the heavens. Uh, And this is why he oversaw and sponsored the building of the temple, which is a kind of embodiment of the heavenly order on earth. Right And really from this point onwards, Masons always see themselves as kind of almost priestly figures. And there are certain Masonic offices that are even called priest or high priest. They are transmitters and interpreters of this kind of heavenly wisdom and this sort of uh, divine vision of what, uh, what the world should look like right? And geometry is kind of the language or the material through which the divine vision is acted out uh, on earth. And if you look at the common symbols that Masons use today in the modern world, you may have seen the square and compass. Those are builders' tools forming a sort of diamond shape. And in the middle, the letter G, right? That's a common, possibly the most common Masonic emblem. And G is, is understood to stand for both God and geometry, right? So geometry is a kind of divine heavenly art which goes back to the biblical world and has this special meaning because of the connection to Solomon and and Solomon's temple, right? And uh, you'll find one of the most important things that I try to point out about Freemasonry that has been misunderstood is how The symbolic social world of Freemasonry centers so much on kingship and monarchy and the notion of kings being like successors of David and Solomon, you know, uh, anointed by heaven, uh, connectors, links between the heavenly world and the earthly world. Okay. So this legend of Freemasonry originating from the building of Solomon's Temple, it persists all the way from the 1400s to today. Uh, But it is later, somewhere around 1700 or a little after, that a further story emerges in the documentary record. And I won't get too deeply into it. You may have heard of it. But Masons begin to record... Uh, a further founding legend which claims that their first leader was the architect and master builder of Solomon's Temple, whom they call Hiram Abiff. And we don't know exactly where that name came from. We know that one of the uh, sponsors who helped to build Solomon's Temple, according to the Bible, was King Hiram of Tyre. But Hiram Abiff is understood to be a further third leader or figure who actually was himself a builder and who had uh, the secret plans and designs of the temple and who understood the sort of underlying mystical meanings of the temple geometry and who had a secret password that he used to sort of convey and mark this secret knowledge, which he only shared with other masons. Uh, And according to the Hiram Abiff legend in these Masonic documents, Hiram Abiff was attacked by lower-level workers who demanded to know the secret word. Uh, Hiram Abiff refused to tell them, and so these three attackers killed him by three blows to the head. They buried his body in an unmarked grave, while he was missing, other Masons went to search for him, where they found his uh, his makeshift grave and then exhumed his body to be reburied uh, with proper honors at the temple. Uh, and so supposedly a lot of the secret signs, the handshakes, the secret passwords in Masonic ritual are connected to this Hiram Abiff legend. Now, if, as far as I'm concerned, if you ask me, I would say that most likely these words and handshakes and gestures probably already existed for a long time as part of how these lodges worked and identified their members. And then the Hiram Abiff legend was created as kind of an explanatory story right, as, as, a, as a myth to link these things together. Uh, but uh, the way Masons teach it, they say this is what happened, this is their founding story, and the gestures and words derive from it. Okay. Now around the same time If we look at what we know about Freemasonry in the 16, 1700s, when it was really growing rapidly, uh, further uh, esoteric and mystical ideas, especially from the occult arts like alchemy, astrology, and Kabbalah, uh, were kind of layered onto the basic stories and myths of Freemasonry. Okay, so you can see terms uh, from especially from astrology, uh, the different sort of realms of the cosmos, the cycles of the sun, uh, references to Kabbalah, numerology, uh, and sort of borrowings from, uh, from other occult arts, divination like necromancy. They all get involved in these Masonic stories and the symbols and the secret words that Mason's Use Okay, so, uh, you know, historically speaking, it's not very likely that these sort of mystical and esoteric ideas, some of which maybe I'll talk about a little later, uh, were there from the beginning, right? They're not there in the origins. They are uh, kind of picked up and thrown together in various creative ways, you know, in this process that scholars now like to call bricolage. Uh, and are woven into the various stories and rituals of Freemasonry. And this happens uh, probably both because a lot of stonemasons were being exposed to these ideas and were interested in them, and also because little by little more and more men started to join these lodges and take part in Freemasonry, even though they weren't stonemasons, Right? They might be school teachers or shoemakers or diplomats or all, all kinds of things. Uh, and they knew about these sort of mystical ideas and liked to bring them and use them to sort of elaborate or elucidate the Masonic myths and rituals. Okay? So there's this layering. Right? In the year 1738, if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head, might have been 37. I'll have to double-check that. Um, a man named Andrew Michael Ramsey from Scotland, who was a Scottish Jacobite, you might remember I've talked about the Jacobites before, uh, who had relocated from Scotland to France and worked occasionally for the Jacobite court in exile in France and Italy, uh, gave a speech in which he claimed for the first time that, in fact, the customs and rituals of Freemasonry derived from the medieval crusading knightly orders, uh, and that uh, the the sort of rules of Freemasonry had been laid down not by King Solomon or or any other biblical figure, um, but, in fact, by the crusading orders in Jerusalem. Now, shortly after he gave this speech, the idea became very popular and spread. There was sort of a growing uh, interest and almost, you might say, kind of neo-Crusader revival going on, uh, including among Jacobites and others. And soon after, by the 1740s, there were some Freemasons specifically saying that their fraternity derived originally from the Knights Templar and i have a whole lecture discussing the knights templar and their history um this is a fairly popular idea now among masons themselves and other people uh it there is no historical evidence for it um and nobody made this connection and made this claim before andrew michael ramsey in his Uh, oration at Paris in 1738. Uh, So in terms of the long span of Masonic history, which goes back to at least the 1300s, this is a comparatively new notion of this connection between the Crusading Orders and Freemasonry. Uh, Again, you know, there's no evidence supporting it. That doesn't necessarily mean it's impossible. You know, anything is possible what did templars do after their order was destroyed where did they take their ideas their rituals their practices could there be some link to masonic lodges there could be i mean anything's possible you know it could be space aliens but i think that this idea of a link between them really persists because a lot of the same ideas and attitudes and aspirations can be seen you know in parallel between the Crusaders, particularly the Templars, and Freemasonry, right? The idea that there's a sort of special brotherhood with special secret or mystical knowledge connected to Solomon's temple that gives them a special authority and a special duty to sort of reform the world and put the world back right to the way it should be according to some kind of divine plan. Right? And, and if you're familiar with Jewish mysticism, with Kabbalah, with the idea of, uh, of regathering the sparks, of tikkun olam, or repairing the world, there's a lot of connection and shared influence among all of these various groups and their teachings. Right? There is some sort of special closed group, with the correct mystical knowledge to put the world into its right order, right? So it's more on that level that I think these things are connected. Okay, so that you could say is a little quick uh, history of the history of Freemasonry, right? Now, I haven't talked about the institutional organization, the actual emergence of Freemasonry as a kind of international institution happened gradually, mainly in Britain, more specifically in Scotland, and more specifically still in the Scottish lowlands in the 15 and 1600s. So there were lodges of stonemasons with this kind of mythic history and with certain similar rituals all around Britain by the 1500s. And we know that there are many surviving copies of old charges from various lodges around Britain at that time. Most of them were probably used by temporary lodges that would form and disband at work sites. Some might have been more permanent, fixed groups in places like London or York. Um, And there were some in the major towns of Scotland, Edinburgh, Glasgow Kilwinning. And it seems that in the 1590s, King James of Scotland, and particularly his master of works named William Shaw, decided to regularize and standardize more of the practices of these lodges to improve their quality of work and to make them more accountable to the needs and designs of King James and the Stuart dynasty, which was very interested in grand building projects as symbols of their power and authority and wisdom, right? And that liked to associate themselves and make references to David and Solomon and these sort of wise philosopher kings, right? So William Shaw issued a series of statutes. Uh, standardizing the practices and teachings of Masons in these Scottish towns in the late 1590s. And once that happened, it seems uh, the Masons and their practices became more known and it generated more interest among the sort of slowly growing literate bourgeoisie of these towns. And more and more men who practiced other trades or who might be minor scholars, government officials, clerks, uh, clergymen, started to join these lodges and to undergo the initiation process. And by about 1650, most of the larger lodges in Scotland, Aberdeen, uh, Inverness, Canongate and Leith, and as well as Edinburgh, Glasgow, and Kilwinning, uh, were a mixture of so-called operative Masons, meaning Freemasons who actually built things, and speculative Freemasons, meaning people who were Freemasons mainly because they were interested in the social solidarity, the mythology, the, the, the kind of esoteric side of it. Right, So now, more and more, we see regular records being kept that record uh, who joined and when and what they paid and who they were. Uh, they have more literate people. They have more men with money funding these lodges. And it's starting to become a popular thing to do. And here and there, some fairly prominent men, some ambassadors, other masters of works, uh, writers, are joining. Uh, And in particular, we know about some prominent men like Robert Murray and Elias Ashmole, who was an English uh, artillery engineer and alchemist who uh, founded the Ashmolean Museum at Oxford. Uh, He was a Freemason and he recorded in his journal uh, Masonic meetings that he attended, lodges that he attended. And by 1700, 1710, there are now several lodges in London. So the movement, using more or less basically Scottish-style rules and customs and language, uh, has spread to London and is attracting men of various social classes in London. And in 1717, four lodges in London joined together to form the first Grand Lodge, the Grand Lodge of England. Uh, and this Grand Lodge starts to try to oversee, uh, much like William Shaw had done in, in Scotland back in the 1590s, the Grand Lodge of England tries to oversee and set rules and standards and uh, you know, best practices for the creation of new lodges as the movement now spreads through England and then to the colonies. So this is the first Grand Lodge, but it's followed up by the Grand Lodge of Ireland in 1725. Um, I'm I'm doing these off the top of my head. I think I'm getting the dates right, right. Ireland, 1725. Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. So this is a provincial Grand Lodge in the colonies in 1733. And the Grand Lodge of Scotland, Uh, is formed 1736 and around the same time some of the dates are uncertain late 1730s early 1740s grand lodges appear also in france and spain Uh, and it seems that there were merchants diplomats mercenaries who were traveling from britain abroad to uh, the continent and were initiating uh, sort of friends and associates in the masonic customs that they knew and in some cases also recruiting masonic organizations that already existed right guilds of of stonemasons that were already there and they all started to come together under this sort of umbrella of of scottish or more broadly british style freemasonry and they then carry it to the colonies and sort of plant new lodges in the caribbean south africa uh, not uh, long after India, and uh, by 1800 it's a global movement, right? Okay, so, so this is how Freemasonry becomes this kind of international uh, social and philosophical club like we know it in the modern world. But I haven't been talking about what you actually did to become a Mason and what marked who was a mason well that was all highly ritualized right so how did these rituals work well lodges performed a whole variety of rituals to mark transitions in time to mark Uh, when someone became a Mason, when they attained a new office. There are elaborate lodge opening and closing rituals that involve reciting certain lines, often lines from the Bible, lines from Masonic legends, Uh, the use of implements, uh, gavels and squares and compasses. Um, There are installation ceremonies when someone takes up a Masonic office, consecrations when a new lodge is founded, Uh, processions. When lodges take part in public uh, events, like, say, a cornerstone laying of a new building, they will uh, undertake a ritual procession. Uh, Possibly the most uh, personally important uh, ritual that Masons also perform is funerals, right? One, One of the advantages of being a Freemason was it was a kind of social insurance. Many men, like mariners or artisans, Uh, didn't necessarily have enough money saved up to pay for their own burial. So joining a social club was, in part, it was a burial club, right? And this is true of Freemasons. And there's an elaborate uh, Masonic uh, funeral rite that involves uh, reciting certain lines, putting uh, a sprig of vegetation on top of the coffin before it's buried, and so forth. And this was an important function of Freemasons, right? But really the most important central ritual of masonry that really demarcates who is or is not a mason is degree initiations right when you become a mason or when you ascend to higher degrees of freemasonry you go through an initiation rite now you may have heard of the many you know sort of dizzying uh, higher degrees of Freemasonry and, oh my God, Gerald Ford was a 33rd degree Mason, right? Most of that is is basically meaningless. It's, it's not as important as it sounds. The important thing is that lodges in the world today universally practice three basic degrees of initiation. So any ordinary Masonic lodge, which can be called a craft lodge or a blue lodge is another term performs three degrees so you become an apprentice mason then a fellow craft and then a master sort of mimicking the uh, levels of a medieval craft guild right where you'd be an apprentice then a fellow craft or journeyman and then a master craftsman so this is basically the standard of freemasonry around the world you can then if you want join Masonic clubs that practice further higher degrees. So, if you've heard of, I'll talk later about York Rite and Scottish Rite. Uh, These are are further higher degrees that you can take part in, but it's basically just for fun. It doesn't give you more power or more importance if you do higher degrees. It's just something you might feel like if you really enjoy these myths and rituals, which a lot of Masons do. but if you are a master mason, if you've done that third degree, then you are recognized as a fully legitimate mason uh, entitled to, uh, to take part in any lodge you visit around the world. Right? There's a basic sort of equality there among all master masons. Okay? Now, it wasn't always this way. It seems that initially from the old charges and other documents that initially um, there was just one degree. You you would go through an initiation at the time when you were empowered to practice the trade. And that would happen probably somewhere in your apprenticeship process. Uh, later, this was uh elaborated and split so that then you there were two degrees. You would have an apprentice initiation when you started your apprenticeship, and then a fellow craft initiation once you were done and you could practice a uh, without being apprenticed to a master, right? Okay, so, and then and then a third degree was created uh, of master, master mason. But before I get into that, um, what we know about the development, evolution of these rituals mainly comes from a series of documents called Masonic Catechisms. That's what scholars traditionally called them. Uh, so basically, uh, these are documents handwritten documents most of them probably written as notes or aid memoir right to help people remember the words and stages of these rituals when they had to perform them and these documents eventually were leaked some were even exposed and printed in the 1700s but They're basically Mason's own notes, right? So they're not always totally consistent. They're not always totally clear or complete. But they're the earliest records we have of what these rituals were and what they taught and how they worked. These rituals always involved the passing on of some sort of secret word. And it seems that this was originally one word, which could be referred to as the Mason word, right? And if you knew this word, then you could uh, demonstrate that you were a real initiated Mason. We can't say exactly what this word was because different documents record it differently, but it seems like it was something like Mahabin or Mahabone. And there's actually a pamphlet from the 1720s called The Grand Mystery Laid Open, where a Mason supposedly discusses what this word is. And he says, I won't repeat the word because, quote, it is a Kabbalistical word composed of a letter out of each of the names of Lailah Ilallah." So if you heard my lectures about Islam, you might know that that phrase laylach ilalach is Arabic, and it's a way of referring to God in, in Arabic. Uh, so... You know, this is weird, complicated stuff, but it seems that by this time, Masons were getting ideas, kind of mystical ideas from Judaism and Islam that were available in Europe, and they were using them, again, to describe and elaborate their myths and rituals. So this word, Mahabin or Mahabon, whatever that Mason word is, it's probably impossible to ever know exactly what the origin is or what it meant, because... It's probably kabbalistical, meaning it has a secret meaning based on uh, an acronym, based on combining letters from different words, from a phrase or, or a slogan of some kind. Okay, so as I said, it seems that it started with one initiation ritual that then were split into two somewhere around 1600. So in the 1600s at this time, when more gentlemen of various backgrounds were becoming Freemasons, they went through two degrees of initiation, uh, entered apprentice and then fellow craft. And the earliest surviving document of any sort that describes a Masonic ritual is the so-called Edinburgh Register House Manuscript, which is a very important document in Masonic history. Um, and is, you know, metaphorically a a kind of key to the gate uh, of Freemasonry, and and which is so important to, to read and to understand. And it happens that this document, like all Masonic catechisms, it survived and was found by chance. It was discovered by researchers in the old Register House archives in Edinburgh, Scotland right? So this was the main center. Scotland, lowland Scotland, was the main center of Freemasonry in this early era, right? So it was discovered in 1930, and it is written on a large folded piece of stationery, and on the back of it, in uh, it is, it's handwritten, and on the back of it is written a note saying, some questions anent the Mason word 1696. So Thank you to whoever wrote the document. They dated it for us. So this is the only internal Masonic ritual document that dates from before 1700. And it seems that it was, uh, it was an aid memoir. It was some man, probably a man who worked in some capacity for the Scottish government in Edinburgh, who wrote this down for his own use or his friend's use. And it's in two parts, Okay, and the first part has a header that says some questions that masons use to put those who have the word before they will acknowledge them. So this is a sort of secret quiz, you could say, where a mason can ask another man who claims to be a mason these sort of secret questions in order to test them and confirm that they really are a brother, right? And, And it begins simply with this sort of structure of question and answer, with the questioner saying, are you a mason? The the respondent says, yes. Question, how shall I know it? Answer, you shall know it in time and place convenient. Uh, Question, what is your first point? Answer, tell me the first point, I'll tell you the second. The first is to hail and conceal. Second, under no less pain, which is then cutting of your throat. So this is describing an interaction where someone is being kind of interrogated. And it starts off by emphasizing how sensitive and important these secrets are, and that if you reveal them to the wrong person, your throat will be cut. And it goes on then to ask about the lodge. Okay. Where were you entered? Answer, at the Honorable Lodge. What makes a true and perfect lodge? Answer, seven masters, five entered apprentices, a day's journey from a burrow's town without bark of dog or crow of cock, and so on. And the ninth question is, how stands your lodge? Answer, east and west as the temple of Jerusalem. Question, where was the first lodge? Answer, in the porch of Solomon's temple. Okay, so now embedded into this basic ritual of identification and recognition, you see the lodge is likened to Solomon's temple. It's sort of fitting into this the kind of east-west axis of the universe, you know, aligned with the rising sun, uh, like Solomon's temple. Okay, there are more questions like this that discuss the contents of the lodge. Are there lights in your lodge? Are there jewels in your lodge? And you're supposed to be able to describe the internal layout of a lodge room, which sometimes lodges probably did follow, but also it was symbolic, right? This is a kind of imaginary ideal lodge they're talking about. And then the last two questions are, quote, which is the key of your lodge? Answer, a well-hung tongue. Question, where lies the key? Answer, in the bone box. Okay, so the the key to the lodge is not an actual literal physical key. It's secret knowledge, which you convey through speech, right? Through secret words and phrases. And where is the the key in the bone box, meaning in the skull, right? So the real uh, inner sanctum of Freemasonry is in the person's body and mind, right? Okay, then the next section of the, of the manuscript is headed the form of giving the Mason word. Okay, so this is a description, and I won't get into all the details, uh, but it's a description of how you initiate, okay? And uh, you're supposed to, according to this prose description, you're supposed to take the candidate for initiation on his knees and perform, quote, a great many ceremonies to frighten him. You then make him take up the Bible and lay his hand on it, and you conjure him to secrecy by threatening that if he shall break his oath, the sun in the firmament will be a witness against him. Okay, so it involves fear, right? You're supposed to uh, frighten and intimidate, make them feel that they're engaging in something dangerous and mysterious. And again, they refer to the sun, right? The idea of the sun as this kind of ordering principle that uh, watches uh, and judges, right? And this is an idea that you probably have seen repeated in Masonic iconography, right? The so-called all-seeing eye, the eye in a triangle with sun rays, Uh, bursting out from it Uh, it's it symbolizes this idea that there's a kind of uh, a single spirit watching uh, everything and uh, and that and that somehow acts through the freemasons okay so he's supposed to take an oath right to keep uh, the secrets on the pain of death and then quote after he's taken the oath he is removed out of the company with the youngest mason where after he is sufficiently frighted With 100 ridiculous postures and grimaces, he is to learn from the said Mason the manner of making his guard, which is the sign and postures and words of his entry. Okay, so again, I won't get into all the details, but uh, basically, the manuscript just summarizes you give him the Mason word, you teach him certain signs and grips, and then he is an entered apprentice. Now, the manuscript goes on and says, Now it is to be remarked that all the signs and words as yet spoken are only what belong to the entered apprentice. But to be a master mason or fellow craft, there is more to be done. Okay, And then it describes performing basically the same ritual all over again. It then says that you teach him a further set of grips and postures, which it does not describe in detail. But there are later catechisms from the early 1700s that show that the further grip you're supposed to learn at that second degree is the so-called five points of fellowship where you embrace a brother mason and you're supposed to touch five specific parts of your body like ear to ear and knee to knee Uh, and this shows that you have attained the second degree it's sort of like a highly elaborate full body secret handshake and the legend claims that this Uh, embrace the five points of fellowship is based on the way the masons uh, gripped and lifted the body of Hiram Abiff out of the grave. So this is the first point where you see the rituals being explained somehow as acting out the story of Hiram Abiff and his murder and burial and exhumation. Okay, so that's a sort of, you know, early explanation you could say of these first two degree rituals which happened to be recorded in the Edinburgh Register House manuscript and in later catechisms then it seems that by about 1710 but definitely by no later than 1720 a third degree had been added so right so the second degree only made you a fellow craft then there was a third to become a master mason and in that one you, the initiate plays the role of Hiram Abiff you're told the story of Hiram Abiff and you're then attacked ritually, laid on the ground for some period of time and then lifted up off the ground and told the secret words of the third degree uh, and that's why when you receive this degree it's called being raised a master because you are you are ritually being lifted like Hiram Abiff was taken uh, out of his grave okay so what are the important themes here that we can probably see in these rituals well there's this constant reference to death and rebirth right cycles of death and rebirth right Uh, the Hiram Abiff legend which you act out where you were ritually killed and buried and then lifted again uh, is very similar to other older legends that we can see or some older, some not as old, uh, that also involve similar stories of a man or a builder particularly being killed and then somehow brought back to life. Um, One story that it clearly echoes or evokes is the story in the book of Samuel where the prophet Elijah goes to a widow's house Uh, whose young son has just died, and he lays his own body on top of the young man's body and then brings him back to life by somehow breathing life back into him. So this story of Elijah reviving the widow's son from the dead is constantly referred to in Masonic uh, scuttlebutt uh, because Hiram Abiff is one of his titles masons refer to him by is the widow's son okay so they're clearly somehow trying to combine these stories Um, and widow's son is often used as a kind of epithet or byword for a freemason right so if you say things like will no one help the widow's son that's a way for masons to call on each other for help in distress so uh, so that story is clearly woven in to masonic language right there's also the story of the prentice pillar which is more obscure but there is a story that goes back at least to the 1700s about roslyn chapel which is a highly elaborate late gothic chapel in Scotland, near Edinburgh, right. So in this area where Freemasonry, as we know it, developed, uh, and that may have some sort of distant or oblique connections to Freemasonry, but you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty iffy. But nonetheless, there is a highly elaborate, ornate pillar carved with entwined vines and uh, tree roots coming out of dragons' mouths. That is really the most stunning piece of work in Roslyn Chapel, and really you could say one of the masterpieces of late Gothic art. And it's traditionally called the Prentice Pillar, because supposedly, according to the traditional story, uh, it was carved while the master builder was away on a a trip, and a young apprentice uh, carved it to show his own brilliance and virtuosity. And when the master came back and saw that he had been so outshone by the apprentice he killed him with blows to the head and the apprentice was then uh, buried in the chapel and uh, is immortalized um, sort of eternally immortalized by his work okay and so there are a lot of echoes of of this story with the Hiram Abiff story, the notion that there was this brilliant uh, builder who you could say was a sort of master builder in the sense of his genius, that he had some kind of preternatural knowledge or power, and that he was killed by another envious builder uh, and killed specifically by a blow to the head uh, and then was buried in the building that he was working on, right? There are many parallels to Hiram Abiff. And I think that this reflects that uh, the Hiram and biff story probably emerged out of themes that were common in European late medieval folklore uh, that involve uh, you know, death, burial, and rebirth, and immortality, and that were somehow connected specifically to building and the idea of sacred buildings being eternal monuments to the people who build them. There are some Masonic manuscripts, I'll just talk about a few of these themes that you see in these early Masonic documents. But there are Masonic manuscripts that even suggest that in some sense, Hiram Abiff uh, is a, a, a resurrecting hero who comes back from the dead, Uh, whenever masons form a lodge. Uh, So if in the Dumfries number four manuscript from around 1710, uh, there's another catechism, right? A set of questions and answers. And the questioner asks, where lays the master? And the answer is, in a stone trough under the west window, looking to the east, waiting for the sun rising to set his men to work. Okay. And I love this line because I think it it brings together and encapsulates so much of Masonic beliefs and cosmology, right? There's this uh, axis of the universe that goes east-west, right? And that is always being traced by the rising sun. And everything in the world, human life, is constantly being reborn, coming back from the dead with each time the sun rises. And when Masons work, when they form a lodge, open a lodge, and do masonic work they are sort of participating in this constant cycle of rebirth with the sun okay now you might remember the edinburgh register house manuscript makes this kind of oblique reference saying you have to make many ceremonies to frighten the candidate before you then have them take the oath and prepare them to be initiated, but it doesn't describe, you know, what are these ceremonies? Well, it seems from later texts that there was a particular process that was fairly consistent that a candidate had to go through before they could be initiated and, and receive the secrets. And these involved uh, questioning the candidate as to whether they wanted and were prepared to receive the degree. They would then be taken aside into a dark side chamber, right? Maybe a closet or some other side room. They would be blindfolded and they would be divested of any possessions, coats, sometimes shoes, uh, any money, weapons, anything they had with them would be taken away. They would then be left in this room blindfolded uh, in darkness and silence for around half an hour, it seems. That's That's what the some of these early texts say. Meanwhile, the the brothers of the lodge would be preparing a room with the right symbols and tools for the initiation ceremony. And once it was ready, the initiate would then be brought out of the side room and they would be led around the lodge room where the ceremony was to take place, still blindfolded, pulled by a rope, a rope tied either around his neck or around his body. And this would lead to disorientation, sometimes confusion, fear. They could be questioned harshly. Uh, The lodge members could make loud noises to cause more fear and disorientation. Then he would finally be made to kneel. His blindfold would be removed and he would see a bright candlelit room and weapons like swords or daggers pointed at his chest. And one particular Masonic catechism, which was published in 1762, called Jackin and Boaz, named after the the pillars at the entranceway of Solomon's Temple. This exposure says, "Quote." The ornaments borne by the officers, the glittering of the swords, and the fantastic appearance of the brethren in white aprons altogether creates great surprise, especially to a person who for above an hour has been fatigued with the bandage over his eyes, and his uncertainty concerning what is further to be done for his reception must no doubt throw his mind into great perplexity. So the ceremony is designed, it uses isolation, isolation silence, darkness, sound, movement, disorientation to, uh, you might say, kind of break down a person's defenses, to put them into even a kind of trance-like state of mind before they're then finally exposed to the symbols and the secret words that they learn to to become a Mason or to attain this new degree. So it was a very powerful ritual and still is a very powerful ritual that can really make a deep impression on people who experience it. And it's understandable that if people like these rituals and find them interesting, they can kind of become addicted and keep wanting to do more and more degrees and to see more and encounter more. The basic outline, now something that I think is important we have to, uh, keep to that we have to see here historically is that the ritual follows the basic patterns and structure of a classic rite of passage. So rites of passage are ceremonies that anthropologists have described and analyzed that people tend to perform when they're somehow shifting from one realm of existence to another. And they go, they, people in many different societies all around the world tend to go through similar processes to mark transitions. Okay, the human mind doesn't like sort of fuzzy boundaries. We like clear boundaries and demarcations. Where am I? And who am I? And what are my relationships, right? They, so we mark these things, we ritualize them. And it seems that according to the first anthropologist who studied these rituals, called Arnold von Gennep, in his sort of seminal early book, simply called The Rites of Passage, he says it seems that these rituals initially at root are based on simple ceremonies that people perform when they pass through doorways or thresholds, right? People might make a small offering, leave behind an object, say a prayer before they step through a threshold and enter a holy building or a home or before they enter through a gateway and enter a town or the other way before they leave a town right people might leave small objects take small objects say a prayer or invocation change something put on or take off an article of clothing you know if even you know you might think if you walk into a synagogue today you might if you're male you'll pick up a yarmulke and put it on your head when you leave you take it off and put it back these are the sort of small rituals that we still do Um, and it seems that people take these same kind of little practices from passing through thresholds and they reuse them or elaborate them when they pass through a social or a spiritual threshold rather than just a spatial one, right? What about when you join a family or a clan? What about when you join a religious brotherhood or leave one? Uh, what about when you uh, convert and uh, become a member of a tribe or a religious group? What about when you become an adult, right? You know, graduations, uh, bar mitzvahs, Uh, All of these involve different rites of passage and some rites of passage can be extremely elaborate and they tend to involve at least three elements. Okay, and this is Arnold von Gennep described this back more than 100 years ago and anthropologists have been reusing this basic model since where they say, well, a rite of passage usually has three stages, a separation stage, a transition stage. And an incorporation stage. So first separation, where you take yourself out of the familiar environment you've been used to, and that might involve giving up certain objects, taking off certain pieces of clothing, uh, being stripped down. Right. This happens when you, uh, in the Masonic initiation, when you take the candidate into a side room, you take off articles of clothing, you take away his money, his weapons, his possessions, anything made of metal. According to these Masonic manuscripts, has to be taken away, and this enters you then into a transition stage, where you're suspended in a kind of partial death, as Van Gennep describes it, Uh, and this might involve blindness, deafness. Often it involves lifting or suspending a person off the ground, so it's almost like they're floating in a nowhere realm. They're no longer a living person connected to the earth. Uh, And a a lot of these elements, of course, are in the Masonic initiation. You're blindfolded for a long period of time. You spend a time alone in darkness and silence. Even when you're brought out to the Lodge Room, you're led around by a, a rope called a cable tow, which often is tied around your neck. Uh, and sometimes the initiates are even told this is like you're being threatened with death and you're supposed to be afraid. Uh, you're in a kind of uh, in- in-between period, disconnected from life. And then incorporation, where you are brought back to the world of the living and welcomed into a new group or new realm. Where you now belong, and the incorporation stage tends to involve uh, embracing uh, signs of intimacy and connection, like kissing, uh, exchange of gifts, shared meals. Okay, and all of these things are in the Masonic ritual. Okay, the five points of fellowship is in embrace. Uh, you're asked to kiss uh, the Bible as a symbol of your joining uh, the lodge. You are given an apron. Right, entered apprentices, when they join, they're given a simple white apron. And from that point on, whenever you attend a Masonic lodge or ceremony, you're expected to wear your apron. When you join further degrees, like fellow craft or master or higher degrees, you're given other aprons with different symbols, sun and moon symbols, Masonic tools, and so on, to mark your joining this new Degree, and then ordinarily once an initiation is completed you share a festive meal and you eat and drink and usually sing okay so it follows this basic um, uh, template this basic process of a rite of passage and it's supposed to convey the feeling of being kind of reborn as a new person, as a new entity. Now that you are no longer uh, a cowan or ordinary person, you are now a mason, and uh, you've been enlightened with the secrets and knowledge of masonry. And sometimes masons explicitly described it this way, and there's a great passage that was published in newspapers in 1786 where a very powerful German count uh, participated in the initiation of his own son, and the count delivered the charge, right? The the speech at this initiation, and he argued that quote this moment, my son, you owe to me a second birth. Right. So, well, on the one hand, you owe me your your actual bodily birth. I am your father. Um, you also now owe me a second birth, a kind of spiritual or mental birth uh, that you've experienced through the Masonic initiation. Okay, so a lot of the Masonic rite of initiation you can see as as following a typical uh, rite of passage, but there are some weird elements. Um, Some things I mentioned might sound strange. Why do you get rid of any metal? You know, I think there's an alchemical symbolism to that Um, why the cable toe you know i don't know that could be probably debated Um, different masons might have different explanations but there's one particular weird aspect of the masonic initiation ritual that i think is especially important and it's mentioned in one way or another in almost every surviving description early description of the ritual where something is done to one of your feet or shoes. Um, Maybe a slipper is placed over one of your feet or over one of your shoes. And you're told how to walk when you're led into the lodge room. And you're supposed to walk in a sort of shuffling, sideways gait. Okay, so Jackin and Boaz, which I already uh, quoted earlier, says that the candidate has to be told, quote, to step in the proper manner. And then when he takes the oath and is given the Mason word, he has to be set down kneeling on a bare knee, okay? And later, when you're questioned about your initiation, you're supposed to say, quote, I was neither naked nor clothed, barefoot nor shod, deprived of all metal. I was led to the door of the lodge in a halting, moving posture. Okay, another pamphlet uh, describing the ritual called A Mason's Confession from 1727 says that the keeper of the door who prepares the candidate has to, quote, loose the garter of the candidate's right leg stocking, roll down the stocking, fold up the knee of the breeches, and then requires him to deliver up any metal that he has upon him. So all of these documents say you have to have one knee bare, Okay, It's uncovered. Your stockings or pants or whatever have to uncover one knee, and you have to walk in a weird sideways shuffling manner, probably because something has been put on one of your feet. Okay, what's that about? Why do they do that? And does it mean anything? Well, you might remember that in my lecture about the great witch hunt, I talked about the, uh, the so-called good society, the sort of um, apparently shamanic group in european society in the middle ages the late middle ages and the early modern age people who believed that they had a special connection to the world of the dead that they could travel to the world of the dead in return like shamans in many parts of the world and according to many stories and many testimonies about the good society these people were somehow marked by their journey to the world of the dead and back. And they were marked by some sort of unevenness or asymmetry between their legs that caused them to limp or shuffle. And there are all kinds of figures in European mythology and folklore that are somehow part living, part dead, or part mortal, part immortal and these people have something wrong or something uneven about their legs. Uh, Achilles, right, who has one vulnerable heel because that's his mortal side, right? Uh, The Fisher King, who has one unhealing injury on one of his legs. Uh, Pythagoras, whom the Masons talk about constantly as a progenitor of the craft. Uh, He supposedly had one golden thigh. Oedipus, the swollen foot, There are all kinds of figures like this where there's something uneven about their legs who often are described specifically as having a strange limp or gait. And this distinguishes them as having somehow, you might say, one foot in the grave, right? Being partly of the world of the living and partly of the spirit world or world of the dead. And so I think this element that you see in the Masonic initiation, it probably, again, like the Hiram Abiff story, it probably goes back to roots in European folklore, especially in Scotland, and to this idea, which we know persisted in Scotland at least until the 1600s, this idea that there are certain shamanic people who have a special ability to travel to the world of the dead and return, right? And so it's all in keeping then with this notion that the Masons have, that they have a special connection to, you might say, the spiritual realm or the realm of the dead, and that through the initiation, you have a kind of encounter with this world of the dead, but you can then return and still be a living person. And there's actually uh, some of these Masonic catechisms specifically say that you have to kneel on the ground with your bare knee touching the ground, right, with this direct connection to the underworld, and you are then shown the images of the coffin and tomb of Hiram Abiff, right? You have this direct connection to the world of the dead, the underworld, the spirit world, whatever you want to call it, and that you then carry this with you as a mason. Okay, so what is the upshot of all of this? What do we uh, make of it? Well, these are all observations that I've made about the sort of legends, the, the rituals, the iconography of Freemasonry, right, that I think are all related and tell a certain story. These aren't necessarily the things that matter most to all Masons, at least they're not alone unto themselves. But these rituals are experienced together with informal socialization, and you might say less formalized ritual, like eating, drinking, and singing songs, right? So there's a sort of arc, you could say, to the ritual, which is highly formalized, which involves tension, uh, often fear, and that tension is then broken by then uh, adjourning the ritual and going to drinking particularly and if we look at the literature from published by masons and written by masons in the 16, 1700s, there are these ritual texts which are very important and revealing that i've talked about but most masonic literature that was published and possibly the majority of all masonic literature that's ever been published is song lyrics okay masons love to sing you know and a lot of these songs are silly, uh, some of them talk about their history and their heroes and Euclid and Hiram Abiff, and some of them are just about we like to, to drink port and sherry and be merry. Um, you know, th- there's all kinds of just cute rhymes that masons have sung uh, and, and have just gotten drunk together, right? And this is what I think really seals the Masonic relationship, the feeling of a bond, the feeling of belonging to an emotionally bonded group, right, uh, is, is first the rituals and then the, the singing and drinking together, right? And this is what builds the feeling of brotherhood and fellowship which is what Masons constantly talk about, right? When Masons talk about why they're Masons and what they get from it, they don't say, oh, it's because I'm, I'm a Whig or because I believe in the Enlightenment or constitutionalism or any of that junk. It's the feeling of brotherhood and fellowship that you share, especially with other Masons, that nobody else knows, okay? And alcohol is a drug, right? And so in a lot of ways, these things, these things go together. There are many other mystery cults. You know, If you want to talk about the Eleusinian mysteries, uh, the Mithraic mystery cult, many of them use some sort of psychotropic drugs, right? If not alcohol, maybe mushrooms or some other kind of fungus, uh, and they use chant. They use periods in darkness and isolation to alter people's mental states to put them into some kind of ecstasy and before you then bring them into the group and share the secrets, right? And this underscores the, the bonding of the group, right? So the formal ritual and the informal socialization you could say are, are links in the same chain, right? And all of this, the, the, the feeling of emotional connection, the feeling of, of secret mystical insight All of these things, I think, help to deal with death and mortality, right? Symbols of death uh, are common, you know, skulls and crossbones, coffins, they're all around Masonic iconography. And so are the various symbols from mythology of connections, of bridges that cross the gap between the living and the dead, like Solomon's temple, of course, the Garden of Eden, the Tree of Life. All of these are referred to in higher degree rituals, especially Jacob's ladder, right? The axis connecting the earthly world to the heavenly. All of these are used and repeated over and over in Masonic rituals. And again, the most important, practically speaking, the most important rituals Masons perform is funerals for their members, right? It's it's uh, belonging to this fraternity, helps you to cope practically and mentally, with the prospect of death, right? And, and all the stories, the Hiram Abiff story, involve somehow facing death, but leaving behind a, a legacy, right? Okay, so the final comment I'll make is that all of this is important to understanding what Freemasonry is, why people join, what they take from it, non-masonic historians need to know this just as non-masonic historians need to know the content of christianity and the bible in order to understand american history or european history or the west indian history you have to know what freemasonry is about and what freemasons believe and what they do uh it's it it is historically impactful right Masons make reference to these myths and rituals to convey what they think about their own lives and about historical events. And you have to know what they're talking about. So I'll just end with this example, which comes from the funeral for General Joseph Warren, who was an American revolutionary patriot, and organizer, you a know, major leader of the Sons of Liberty. Uh, and one of the first leaders of the Continental Army uh, in Massachusetts in 1775. So Joseph Warren was a compatriot and a major influence on John Hancock and on the formation of the First Continental Congress and the Continental Army. And he fought in the Battle of Breed's Hill, also more popularly known as Bunker Hill, and he was killed when he was starting to retreat, right, when the Americans were ceding the hill to the British. And he turned to help lead the retreat, and he was hit by musket balls in the back of the head and killed. The Americans were forced to to withdraw, and so the British quickly buried his body and other casualties in shallow makeshift graves. Months later, in the spring of 1776, after the British withdrew from Boston, the Americans were able to retake control of the hill, and they wanted to exhume and rebury whomever they could find. Sound familiar? Uh, And most importantly, they wanted to find and exhume the body of Joseph Warren. And so friends and associates of Joseph Warren, including Paul Revere, were able to identify his body because he had a fake gold tooth, which Paul Revere had made for him. Paul Revere was a metal worker. So they were able to identify the body and they took it to be reburied with honors, with both uh, honors as an American patriot, and also Masonic honors since he was an active Freemason and he was a member of the same Masonic Lodge in Boston as John Hancock and Samuel Adams and Paul Revere. So the otherwise obscure Mason Perez Morton was tapped to give a eulogy at the uh, funeral service held at King's Chapel in Boston right, at the Anglican Chapel in Boston, where he was memorialized before he was reburied. And Perez Morton, in his uh, eulogy, he celebrates Warren as a great patriot who had died not only for his country, but for the cause of liberty and mankind. And he says, uh, quote, the fates, as though they would reveal in the person of our Grand Master, those mysteries which have so long lain hid from the world, have suffered him, like the great master builder in the temple of old, to fall by the hands of ruffians, and be again raised in honor and authority. We searched in the field for the murdered son of a widow, and we found him by the turf and the twig, buried in the brow of a hill, though not in a decent grave." So obviously, Paris Morton here is likening Joseph Warren to Hiram Abiff, a sort of wise leader who was killed by those who were resentful and envious of him and had to be buried and exhumed and reburied. Right? And so in this way, the, the temple served as a monument to Hiram Abiff. And in the same way, Morton is implying that if the American revolutionary experiment succeeds, it will be sort of his temple. It will be his monument that will survive him and that will make his life and death worth it. You know, this was a very, you know, stately, formal, erudite sermon that Morton was giving at this funeral. But it was also, he was using very intentionally this coded masonic mythological language to convey a certain meaning and a certain kind of mythical interpretation of events to fellow masons now a lot of people through the years of course have associated and connected freemasonry with the american revolution and there are a lot of connections there and you may know franklin and washington and so on were were masons uh, so were a lot of the british ministers and generals who prosecuted the war against the colonies, Uh, but this is just one example. Masons all around the world in all kinds of different events have tried to make sense of things by fitting events and fitting their lives into this kind of ongoing mythic cycle of death and burial and rebirth, whether literally or figuratively rebirth. So this is why everything i've been talking about here about the masonic myths and rituals is important you know obviously it's important to masons themselves if that's what they're into and they usually are but it's important to the rest of us as well to know what this is all about so thank you so much uh, for listening and again this is a bit of a milestone i have 50 patrons now if you want to keep these lectures coming And if there's particular things you want to hear about, uh, please uh, email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. And I encourage you to go to Patreon and become a patron, even if it's just for a dollar, and you'll get access to all of my uh, patron-only lectures, including my last one about the West or Western civilization. Thank you.